You're walking in the Himalayas. There's no one around and your phone is dead. Out of the corner of your eye, you spot him. And it's not Shia LaBeouf. Could it be, after all these years of searching, you have finally found it? That horrid creature that haunts your dreams at night, ever since you first saw his stop-motion glory in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. An expert in your field, you've proven the existence of Sasquatch and his distant cousin, Bigfoot. Child's play. You've made friends with the majestic beast of the lock, and you even have photographs of Man-Bear-Pig and the ever-elusive bear holding a shark. But none of this matters. None of this sates your unending hunger for proof that the one true monster exists. The abominable snowman. The Yeti. You run towards it, trigger finger on your camera shutter, ready to have your dreams realized. But as you draw near, dread overcomes you. For before you it is not the Yeti, but rather an incredibly cute bear. Your search for the real Yeti will have to continue. And if you're going to find them, you're going to have to search an entirely separate range of mountains. Oh, hey, I didn't see you there. You're listening to Biodiversity, the podcast about pelagic paradigms and coral curiosities, where we bring the best in flippin' fun fish facts straight to your ear holes. It's like we're the delivery drivers of peer-reviewed aquatic science, the grub hub of fish food for your mind, the DoorDash of dope decapods. Here on the show, we examine the weird, the wacky, and the wonderful diversity of life that lives under the crashing waves of our blue home. Using cutting-edge science as our guide, we dive deep into both the common and the rare, the exotic and the ugly. So tune in for the tuna, stick around for the scorpion fish, let's descend. Today on the show, the Yeti. Yep, that's right, they exist. And not only one of them, thousands of them. And not only that, they are also phenomenal dancers. These real, honest-to-goodness yetis don't live in the Himalayas, but rather all across underwater mountain ranges in the darkest depths of the sea. And they're a little more crusty than you might think. And that's because they're crustaceans. I am, of course, referring to a cute little decapod that we commonly know as the Yeti Crab. A lot of the information and the inspiration for the show today actually comes from a singular scientific paper. This one's called Dancing for Food in the Deep Sea, Bacterial Farming by a New Species of Yeti Crab, by Andrew R. Thurber and his associates. And, like, yes, yes, just yes. That is such a poetic name. Who says art and science can't meet? The name alone just evokes this image of a graceful crustacean, pirouetting on a dark stage the world may never see. One day, little ballerina, your act will be known to the world. Now, it's worth noting that this paper is old. It's coming at you straight from the year 2011. You know, a simpler time. I remember that there was a cool supercomputer that won at Jeopardy, and people were preparing for this apocalypse that was supposed to be coming in the next year. Weird that that was, like, 
eight years too early. Get it together, Mayans. The point here is that there is so, so little research on these little guys. I mean, I'm getting most of my information from a paper that's nine years old. There are a few others out there that I've read, and there has been some cool research that is more recent into the few known species, but they truly are still a mystery. People just don't pay attention to them, living down there in the deep ocean. And being from the darkest of depths, it's probably fair to say that they like to avoid the limelight. Alright, I think I've hit my quota of dad jokes for the episode. Today we will be talking about the cool insights that we do have into this mythical-sounding, adorable, hairy crab. There is a lot that makes the Yeti crab so cool and noteworthy, but before we start discussing what exactly those are, we should take a few moments to discuss what Yeti crabs actually are. The term Yeti crab actually refers to a small collection of related species of deep-sea squat lobsters. Now, that can be misleading, but they are more closely related to true crabs than they are our tasty-tailed friends. Taxonomically, we are talking about the genus Kiwa, under which there are currently four named species and two undescribed species. The initial discovery and naming was made in 2006 in a paper by McPherson et al., which described them as white, quote, hairy, unquote, crustaceans. And honestly, that's about as true and accurate as a description as you're going to get. For the most part, they are white in coloration and absolutely covered in these white hairs. That's why they're even called Yeti crabs. The white coloration and the white hairs really together evoke images of the mythical beast from Himalayan legend. One of the species has these large frontal claws, almost the length of its body, that are completely covered in the hairs, and another one has its highest concentration on its ventral surface, or what the average person might call its chest. If you have time at the moment, take a few seconds to Google Yeti crab and see what I'm talking about. They are so adorable, I can't even... These little guys are, in fact, little. They are not big like some of our reef-crawling decapod friends. In fact, most of them are under 15 centimeters in total length. That's less than 6 inches for our far inferior imperial system friends. Don't worry, I still love you regardless of your terrible choices in measuring units. They can be found in large clusters on the deep sea floor and are just part of this incredible, vibrant community of life that can be found down there. Due to the dark conditions, they lack any sort of pigmentation and... They are currently thought to be blind. All Yeti crabs are currently grouped in the genus Kiwa, and the first cool fact about them is actually this name right here and why it was picked. So, before we board the magic school bus and dive into the nitty-gritty of Yeti biology, let's take a little learning side trip and talk about nomenclature. Yes, the science of names, the most exciting of the sciences. If you aren't hyped to talk names with me right here, right now, you can promptly take a left turn at Albuquerque and get right out of my face. Well, of course, the common name of Yeti Crab obviously derives from the white, hairy appearance reminiscent of that legendary cryptid. The scientific naming of Kiwa actually comes from a different mythology. We're going to go ahead and trade the Himalayas for volcanoes and snowstorms for waves, as we're going to venture all the way over to Oceania and the amazing realm of Polynesian mythology. Now, a bit of a disclaimer here, I feel the need to note that I am by no means an expert on the mythology, and all of this side tangent comes from internet research. I hope I did it justice, but if there are any listeners that have experience on the subject from either a personal or a scholarly viewpoint, I'd love to hear from you, chat with you a bit, and correct any errors that I made. Also, I will try my best to pronounce things correctly. 
So, initially, the name Kiwa was chosen to refer to, quote, the goddess of shellfish in Polynesian mythology, unquote, and the word gender assigned was feminine. Now, presumably the authors of the original paper had more pressing things to do than to verify their mythological fact, shame, but in actuality, this is now referred to as a mistake. The real origin of that name is much more complex, and honestly, much more fascinating. Polynesian mythology is of course a huge topic, concerning several distinct cultures that both derive and deviate from a shared oral tradition. As the indigenous peoples spread across the Pacific Islands, they took their stories with them, conveying, changing, and adapting them as time marched on. The name Kiwa, in actuality, stems from the stories of the Maori people, these being the indigenous people of mainland New Zealand. In Maori mythology, Kiwa is the name of a male divine guardian of the sea, and he cuts quite a different figure than what comes to mind when one thinks the goddess of shellfish. By some accounts, Kiwa was one of the sons of the two beings whose union created all life, Rangi the Sky Father and Papa the Earth Mother. Kiwa was one of several children, who, from this union, would form the first gods. Kiwa's particular dominion was the sea. He helped oversee and regulate many of the interconnected processes that life in the sea undertakes. Now, in Maori culture, genealogy, or the concept of one's ancestry, is really, really important. They actually even have a word just for this, whakapapa, and we see its influence throughout Maori culture. One important facet of this mindset is that any given phenomena can be explained as having come from two parental phenomena. For instance, the personification of streams and freshwater, Peruanuamea, was born of the union of Tane, the god of forest and birds, and Hinemonga, the mountain maid. She, in turn, was the mother of Rakahore, a personification of rock. All of this genealogy and family tree history can be traced all the way back to that primordial sky father and earth mother, whose union bore Kiwa and many of the first gods. Now, this is leading up to something stunning, I promise, but in order to get there, we're going to have to look at the genealogy of Kiwa a little bit more closely. As previously stated, Kiwa was a guardian of the sea, who himself was born of Rangi and Papa. By some accounts, over the course of time, the guardian took two different wives. The first was actually already mentioned, Perawanuamea, the ancestor of freshwater streams. After that marriage, he took a second wife, Hinemoana, a personification of the sea. Now, in this second union, Kiwa and Hinamoana had a number of children who, get ready for it, were the direct ancestors of many modern-day sea life species that we know today. Uh, one child was the ancestor of sea urchins, uh, another was the ancestor of eels, and others still the ancestors of octopuses or mollusks. So, in a nutshell, what this means is that Kiwa was not a goddess presiding over the delicious buttery realm of exoskeleton-protected aquatic invertebrates, but rather the father of the ancestors of many, many beautiful marine life species. And our humble little yeti crab, dancing in the swirling, chemical-saturated waters of the deep, is named in honor of this divine being. How cool is that? All right. Etymology is cool and all, and so is mythology, but I know you guys came here for the science. So let's break down what makes these little guys so cool. First up, habitat. It was mentioned before that there are four named species of yeti crab, and each one has been found in an entirely separate part of the world. Kiwa hirsuta was the first species discovered. They were discovered on hydrothermal vents along the Pacific Antarctic Ridge, near Easter Island. Kiwa piravita was found next, chillin' on the deep-sea cold seeps off the coast of Costa Rica. Say that five times fast. 
Deep Sea Concepts, Deep Sea Concepts, Deep Sea Concepts, Deep Sea Concepts. Years later, Kiwatai Larry came in hot, found on the hydrothermal vents down nearer to Antarctica, southeast from South America. Special shout out to Kiwatai Larry for its hairy chest, earning it the special common name of the Hoff Crab. Hey, if I had a chest that full of hair, I'd consider it an honor to be named after the Hoff. And last but most certainly not least comes the enigmatic Kiwa Erione, the last member of the Yeti crew. These were found on hydrothermal vents in the Australian Antarctic Ridge, a ways southeast of Australia. These are all so far apart, but do you sense a theme yet? Maybe a hot topic? Perhaps a vented shared interest? <coughs> if you guessed hydrothermal vents, you'd be absolutely correct. Like a lot of cool deep-sea critters, the yeti crabs live in the astounding habitats surrounding hydrothermal vents, and this is true for three of the four named species. The fourth likes to live out its emo-kid dreams in a similar but much less superheated environment called a cold seep. These seeps are cold, just like my soul. So, what exactly is a hydrothermal vent? Or a cold seep, for that matter? To understand that, we need to understand a little bit about the deep sea in general. Now, some of you may have some indication of just how cool these habitats are. In fact, I think even Blue Planet 2 did an episode on the deep and talked about just how amazing these habitats are. Indeed, these are some of the harshest conditions on Earth, and yet every time we peel back that veil and look down into the depths, we see some of the coolest creatures that this planet has to offer residing in this inhospitable inky black. Now, if you're a diver like me, or took any sort of basic physics in school, you probably already know a lot of this, but the physics of water can be really, really interesting and really, really cruel. Even without knowing the specifics, it is pretty common knowledge that the deeper you go, the harsher it gets. This is due to a lot of factors, but the three biggest barriers to life existing down here are temperature, pressure, and light. Temperature is pretty obvious. Seafloor temperatures can vary, but we are looking at near freezing temperatures around 1 to 4 degrees Celsius. That's 34 to 39-ish degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can barely stand a cold shower, let alone living in an area where the water is on the near cusp of being ice. Pressure is the next barrier. You have to remember that when you are at the bottom of the sea, all of those thousands and thousands of meters of water in the water column above you are being acted upon by gravity and just constantly pushing down on you to form these incredibly high pressures. So you either have to be incredibly well adapted to deal with that sort of thing specifically, or just know how to stand up for yourself. The third and perhaps most important barrier to life down here is the complete and utter lack of light. Basic biology teaches us that most ecosystems are comprised of food chains, and if you made it past fifth grade, complex food webs. Now this concept is really important, because all food webs need to start somewhere. And in most environments, they start with photosynthetic organisms, these being the ones that can take light and turn them into energy. This usually happens with plants or photosynthetic plankton. The energy made by these organisms is then consumed by the next creature higher up on the chain and passed higher and higher until we get to the top, those being our apex predators. 
All of this is basic biology, but it's precisely this that makes deep sea ecosystems so phenomenally interesting. There's no light in these environments. Zero. None. Which means that the base of that food web can't exist. Or can it? Time and time again we see incredible communities of life living where the light dares not venture. I'll go into the nitty-gritty specifics a little bit more later, but what we tend to see are organisms that can use chemicals in the water instead of light in order to produce energy. Imagine being able to just drink some toxic hydrogen sulfide and feel like you just drank a Red Bull. There are two different environments where a humble yeti crab exists. Most commonly so far, as aforementioned, we see them living on hydrothermal vents. For these, take everything that you know about volcanoes and put it underwater. Seawater will actually penetrate the Earth's crust in these areas, interacting with all of its crusty, rocky goodness, dissolving and picking up a lot of chemicals and minerals in the process. While it's beneath the surface, it gets superheated by the nearby magma, once again changing its composition. This new, hot, mineral-enriched seawater can now officially be called vent fluid, and since heat rises, it will rise back towards the surface, often forcefully being ejected in this tumultuous chimney-style fashion at around 400 degrees Celsius. That's 750 degrees Fahrenheit. The metals and other chemicals that the fluid picked up from its journey into the Earth are actually the chemicals that these organisms living in these environments will use for chemosynthesis. The other environment, a cold seep, is a different way to get a similar result of these chemical-rich waters. Also found in areas of tectonic plate activity, a cold seep is an area where the chemicals in the Earth's crust, again, these chemicals like hydrogen sulfide and also methane, simply leak out or seep out into the ocean above. Sometimes this adds salt from the crust as well, and can make this cool kind of lake-within-an-ocean effect. The dense, salty water sinks into craters below the surrounding normal seawaters, what with its normal levels of salts and stuff. And the result? It's like looking at a quite literal lake of water while you are already underwater. It's so cool! These two similar and yet distinctly different areas are where we find our Himalayan snow monster, waving its arms through the chemical-saturated waters like a delicate ballerina. Next up, the life and times of a yeti crab. It's already been mentioned that the yeti crabs do a dance down there in the deep sea, but what is it and what does it have to do with, well, anything? We see them doing this dance to wave their seta, or hairs, through these active areas of chemical seepage in the environments that it lives in, exposing its claws or other parts of its bodies that are covered in these hairs to the toxic chemicals dissolved in the waters. Now, why on earth would it do this? As it turns out, it was discovered in 2008 that the noble yeti crab has bacteria growing on its fur. Tons of the creepy crawlies just live out their happy bacterial lives on the surface of the yeti's seda. Side note, here, you have no idea how incredibly disappointed I was to discover that it was pronounced seda and not seti, because yeti's seti would have been incredibly fun to say. My disappointment is immeasurable, and my day is ruined. I mentioned a bit earlier that I would go into more detail about chemosynthesis and why it's important. Now is that time, and these bacteria are why. These bacteria that live on the yeti crab actually are the ones making use of the abundance of chemicals that the crab waves them through. 
Primarily, they use the hydrogen sulfide spewing out at these vents or seeps and perform what I can honestly only scientifically describe as chemical magic. To take that hydrogen sulfide alongside water and carbon dioxide in the water to produce glucose, sugar, food, energy. I'll point out once more that hydrogen sulfide is extremely toxic to humans, extremely. And all these bacteria can turn that toxin into sugar. Screaming excitement, people, this is amazing. So, that begs the question what are they doing living on the body of the Yeti crab? Well, honestly, taking all of those chemicals and converting them into glucose for energy? It sounds like a lot of hard work. The Yeti crab ain't got time for that. You may have already guessed where this is going, and it's not a nice mutually beneficial symbiosis like the anemone and clownfish. Crabby's gotta eat, and these bacteria are the perfect nutritional source. Using some really cool specialized parts of their anatomy, they can shovel these bacteria towards their hungry mouths, gaining the energy that they need to survive in this harsh environment. The Yeti crab really makes us ask the real philosophical questions like, why do anything that you can get somebody else to do for you, and then eat that person? In this way, the crabs are kind of like farmers. They're quite literally growing the food that they eat. It's worth noting, too, that the role of these bacteria was largely unknown in science for a number of years after their discovery. The paper that inspired this podcast was the first to provide, really, any data that demonstrated that the crab ate the bacteria. In the discussion of the paper, too, it also points out that their diet isn't likely to be 100% bacterial, as organic detritus was also found in the crab's ceta. In a phenomenon known as marine snow, bits of dead and decaying matter from above in the water column do fall down to the depths, and it is possible that this is another source of food for the yeti crab. It makes sense, even I don't want to eat the same thing every night. Last up on our yeti tour, anatomy. So, without launching into another riveting mythological tale, let's talk a little bit about why decapods are called decapods, and what cool specializations the yeti crab has that makes it so fascinating. All animals in the order decapoda derive their name from having ten legs. Deca, ten, and poda, legs. This is the one common trait that unites all crustaceans within this order, having ten legs arranged around segments on the thorax. My first thought when I read this was... Honestly, what kind of bad juju you smoking? Just take a look at the noble shrimp, what with its myriad appendages gracefully swimming through the blue, and tell me again that that creature only has ten legs. And every image of the majestic yeti crab that I've seen, I do not count ten legs, good sir. But, as it often does, science has once again made me the fool. While some decapods can have up to thirty-eight appendages, only ten are ever considered truly legs. These are called the pariapods, and actually most oftentimes include the crustacean's big claw arms. Those big claws, in science mumbo-jargon, are called the chelipeds. Personally, I think claw sounds way cooler. When's the last time you've heard of a supervillain called the chelliped? <sighs> the other part about decapod anatomy that I find endlessly fascinating is their mouth parts. Decapods usually have paired appendages that assist them in feeding, and these are called the maxillipeds. Honestly, watching the maxillipeds do their thing is almost hypnotic. 
I'll post a video that I shot of a bigger crab and its maxillipeds doing their thing in the show notes. Go take a look and tell me that you're not hypnotized and gonna welcome our new crustacean overlords to the planet. Both the pariapods, the legs, and the maxillipeds, those mouth parts, are incredibly unique and specialized on our friend the Yeti. First up, let's talk about the pariapods. For the most part, and most notably with Kiwahirsuta, the claws are absolutely covered in those bushy-looking hairs, the seta that we talked about. The structure of the hairs themselves is incredibly specialized, and now, thanks to scanning electron microscopy, we actually have an idea of how remarkable these structures are. I'll post a few of the scanning electron micrographs from the paper in the show notes. Be sure to go check them out. They are really cool. Now, there are actually multiple types of these hairs, the seta, on the yeti, but there are two main ones that populate the frontal claws, and those are the whip-like barb seta and the stout barbed seta. The first one, the WBS, are the most abundant. It's on these really long, unkempt whip-like structures that the yeti farms its bacterial harvest. These seta not only provide a substrate for the bacteria to grow on, but crabs can take it one step further and wave them around. This is thought to increase the availability of the chemicals to the bacteria, and in turn, makes them grow faster. Now, this doesn't mean that the third type of seta is unimportant. These, the comro seta, are what makes the other awesome structure so awesome. They are found on the maxillipeds. You know, those hypnotic paired mouthparts that are so cool. Specifically, let me direct your attention to the third maxilliped, the third in a number of paired appendages all working together to eat. Again, side note, can you even imagine the level of skill in operating that? I bite my tongue a lot, and I only have to operate one jaw. There's a picture in the show notes, but this, that third maxilliped, might as well have sprang from Ridley Scott's worst nightmares. But you can see in these photographs exactly what I'm talking about. The structure is covered in comro seta. Further microscopy of these seta shows an organized brush or comb-like structure, something like you might actually use to brush your hair in the morning. This unique structure is actually what's able to trap the bacteria, so by simply running it over the farm's bacteria on the hairs on its claws, it sweeps them right up and into its hungry, waiting maw. Personal grooming never was so tasty. So there you have it, a little glimpse into the dark world of the Yeti. Is it a mythical snow monster? No. Has it still clawed its way into my heart? Absolutely. Where else but our home planet of Earth are you going to find a crab that A, is covered in enough chest hair to rival David Hasselhoff, B, farms its own food with nightmare fuel-looking appendages, C, is named after an ocean guardian father figure, and D, is also a phenomenal dancer. I don't know, and I'm not sure I care to. I love the treasures that we have on our planet. Damn ocean, you cool. That wraps up today's show of biodiversity. You have my blessing to flex your newfound knowledge on all your friends. They'll dolphinately love hearing about it. And remember, if you can believe in the Yeti, you can believe in yourself. I'll see you next time.